<laughs> oh, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Let me just fix this up here. About there. Is that good? Oh, I can see the problem already. I have to go a little bit off to the side. Hang on. Oh, that's good. Check one, two. Beep. Exercise starting. Three, two, one. Yes. Welcome back to the Hemingway list. New and improved. Look, we got a month or two to go on this book. Last night, night before, night before, I was feeling a bit like, you know, I'm a busy person these days. The podcast is getting in the way of kind of my well-being, I guess you could say. Like, I just get about a half hour window per day to, uh, you know, free time. <laughs> and that's it. Like, before work, it's like school stuff. Then it's work. After work, it's baby stuff, relieving my partner of duties. Um, even though I work from home, it's like I, I do baby stuff during the day where I can fit it in. But I can't fit it in, you know, when I've got meetings and stuff like that. So from five, then it's like I'm the I'm the cook at home. Um, I do all the cooking dinners. Most nights, at least, probably nine out of ten nights. I think everyone just prefers my cooking. No shade on my partner, but hey, I used to work in a restaurant and a winery and all kinds of stuff like that. <clears throat> um, and uh, what was I saying? Yeah, so it's dinner, then it's clean up, then it's like, you know, baby's dinner, baby has a bath, baby has a bottle, baby goes to bed. And then we watch something on TV at our little, you know, together chill time. And then at about 10 o'clock, my partner, Kylie, she'll go and have a shower. The kids are in bed, everyone's asleep. She goes and has a shower, and I get this window of half hour, 40 minutes, not that she has a 40-minute shower, but, you know, the, the routine goes about that long. And in that window, it's like, okay, better do my podcast. And I've been doing this podcast six years, and I enjoy it. I do like it. But when that's your only window of free time per day, most days, you just think, like, I didn't get a chance to exercise today for example I didn't get a chance to I don't know study something to progress my career or whatever or just to you know tinker on your phone and see where where your mind takes you look stuff up out of curiosity and follow the rabbit hole and you know all that stuff you do in your free time it's just unwind time but mostly I've been feeling pretty unhealthy and just thinking man if I spent this half an hour every single day for the last six years exercising, even mildly, how fit would I be? I would not be in this problem that I've got right now where I just feel very unfit. <clears throat> so I've been thinking, yeah, I'm going to replace, as soon as the podcast finishes, I'm going to replace it with exercise. That's what it's going to replace that discipline, at least at the start. And then I had this idea just now, driving home. I have put my elliptical machine, which is in my office anyway, it's just on the opposite side of the room. I've moved it to the opposite side of the room in front of a bookcase, which sits next to my desk, and I've mounted my microphone to the top of that bookcase so that it's up high, because um, when you're on the elliptical, your head's about seven foot high, 
not sitting at the desk. So my microphone is up here. I'm on an elliptical. The elliptical has a screen holder on it, like a, a device holder. I've got my uh, like iPad thingy here, ready to go. I've loaded up our reading. I've loaded up the Reddit sub. And uh, look, I'm out of breath already. I'm going to have to take it slow, and you're going to have to deal with that. And I don't know if it's noisy. I don't know if the sound of the elliptical is intrusive. <clears throat> Probably the sound of me huffing and puffing won't be good when I'm reading. But that's what's happening, guys. Um, that's just what's happening, right? I hope you can get on board and suffer through my huffing and puffing while I read a book to you. This is what we're doing. I'm going to try to do it most nights, every night if I can, when I do my podcast. So, um, a lot of people listen to podcasts while they go for a walk or exercise, and now the host is doing it too. Right. <clears throat> now, I've got to walk slowly because this elliptical is something about an elliptical. You get very puffed when you're on it, all right? Like, it's more than a treadmill. Book 2, Self, Chapter 5.3, No Discussion from Swim, Swim Said. Well, Ando, I at least am now enjoying this book, but then I have the luxury of time and the inclination to dive into the background details. My comments are my attempt to provide some background context for others as well to hopefully mitigate the opaqueness of the material. Well, I do very much appreciate that, Swim, and I feel every time that I moan and groan about this book that I'm dropping the ball. You know, the whole point of this podcast is for us to enjoy the list and I'm getting in the way of that as the host I think that's just poor that's just bad right <laughs> like I should at least pretend to enjoy it for the sake of the listeners um but I guess I'm so itching to finish this journey of six years which has been I'm sure I'll look back on my life and go that's one of the cooler things I did you know um, but at the same time, as you draw so near to the end of a massive project, you just want to finish this massive project. <clears throat> so, um, with that said, that, that's why my impatience comes through because the last book we're reading is so boring and I'm so itching to finish. It's just bubbling up as quite bitter impatience. So I do appreciate your attempts to mitigate, as you say, the opaqueness of the material, but probably also the bitterness of the host of this experiment. I found Plunkett interesting, but maybe because he spent time near where I was born and raised, and where I spend time, in the Bighorn Mountains. I'm disappointed you rushed through my comments at the speed of light. I thought they added value and sometimes entertainment. And so I persevere. Thomas Patrick Gill, 1858-1931, was a prominent member of the Irish Parliamentary Party in the late 19th century and early 20th century and a member of the Parliament in the British House of Commons representing 1885-1892. He worked with Horace Plunkett in developing the Irish Cooperative Movement, which is credited with the robustness of the Irish dairy industry to this day. In February 1900, he was appointed Secretary of the New Department of Agriculture and Technical Instruction in Ireland. This appointment seems to be the gist of this section and engendered much discussion amongst our 
coterie of characters. Uh, yeah, I do apologize, Swim, for the occasional rush through the podcast and through your comments or indeed any comment. I do love your comments uh, and I do appreciate them. But like I was mentioning before, that half hour window, sometimes in that half hour window, there's something else I really want to get done that's going to take, you know, 25 minutes. And I begrudge that, well, you know, 20 minutes of my half hour window is taken up by the podcast, not leaving me time to properly do the other thing that I'm itching to do. Uh, So it's not any kind of comment on the quality of your input to the podcast or to the discussion. It's simply a matter of the fact that I'm not having time to do the podcast on that particular occasion. Um, so yeah, I do apologize. Um, I do, you know, want to spend more time to do the podcast properly. That's my preference, but some days during a daily experiment that you just don't have the window to do it. Um, let us read chapter six. Six? Is V five? Yeah, V is five, isn't it? Yeah, six. Sienna, Assisi, and Ravina appeared in the imagination and ourselves toiling, toiling up the narrow streets, talking of Raphael, and as we would return through France, we might well stop at Men Montalban to see Ingress at home, Raphael re-arisen after three centuries, a Raphael of finer perceptions. A would have been delighted on this subject, but the journey to Italy was not upon the chart of our destinies. He recovered rapidly. Plunkett arranged that he was to edit the homestead, and every Saturday evening he was in my house at dinner, talking about poetry, pictures, and W.B. Yeats, who came every morning to edit the dialogue I had written for Diamond and Grenier, and to regret that it that I had not persevered with the French version, which Lady Gregory was to translate into English, tied Donoghue into Irish, Lady Gregory back into English, and Yeats was to put style upon, this literary brewing used to remind A.E. of an American drink. The barkeeper present, his two arms describing a crescent. This is harder than I anticipated. I need to catch my breath for five seconds. This is how unhealthy I've gotten since COVID. I used to run 10 to 15 kilometers of a night back in my 20s. Now in my 30s, one staircase, and I'm just about ready to die. Most readers know Bret Hart's celebrated parody, and then feeling that he had laughed too long at his old friend, his face would become suddenly grave, and he would quote long passages from Yeats's early poems, and the original and the amended versions, always preferring the original. That's just it, I answered. The words that he likes today he will weary of and alter a few days afterwards. Forgetting A.E. said that words wear out like everything else. He once said to me that he would like to spend the rest of his life rewriting the poems that he had already written. He's a very clever man, and the worst of it is that there is something to be said for the alterations, even the most trivial. Miss Goo pointed out to me the other day that he had altered here is a drug that will put the Fiana to sleep like into here is a drug. Uh, 
I have made sleepy. What? Of course, it's better, more like folk, but his alterations seem to drain the text of all vitality. The operatic text is what we should be writing together, for we are always agreed about the construction, and the musician will be free from his criticism. A was not quite sure that Yeats would not want a kaoin, and would propose to the musician a journey to Iran. But A.E., we shall require some music for the play. And in the silence that it followed, this remark, the memory of some music I had heard long ago at Leeds by Edward Elgar came into my mind. If I knew Elgar, I'd write and ask him to send me a horn call. Do you know? I think I will. Mr. Benson, I wrote, is going to produce Diomed and Grenier a drama written by Mr. Yeats and myself on the great Irish legend. Finn's horn is heard in the second act, and all my pleasure in the performance will be spoiled if a cornet player tootles out whatever comes into his head. Perhaps some vulgar phrase the audience has heard already in the streets. Beautiful phrases come into the mind while one is doing odd jobs, and if you do not look upon my request as an impertinence, and if you will provide yourself with a sheet of music paper before you shave in the morning... And if you do not forget the pencil, you will be able to write down a horn call before you turn from the right to the left cheek. That will save my play from a moment of vulgarity. Alga sent me six horn calls to choose from, and in my letter, thanking him for his, thanking him for his courtesy, I told him of the scene in the third act. When Diamuid, mortally wounded by the boar, asks Finn to fetch water from the spring. Finn brings it in his helmet, but seeing that Grenier and Finn stand looking at each other, Diamond refuses to drink. This, and the scene which follows, the making of the litter on which the body of musical setting, oh, sorry, on, of, which, on which the body of Diamond is borne away to the funeral pyre, seem to me to crave a musical setting, and how impressive a death march would come after Grenier's description of the burning of Diamond. Alga wrote, asking for the act, and it went to him by the next post, but without much hope that he would write the music, it being my way always to take disappointed by the forelock, thereby softening the blows of evil fortune. And without this precautionary dose of pessimism, Alga's manuscript would not have given me anything like the pleasure that it did. I was so tired of that, and which fours and buts that I stood for a long time admiring the crotchets, the quavers, the lovely rests, and the long columns set apart for violins, columns for flutes, and further columns for oboes, fairly transported me. Alga sent a letter with it, saying that the manuscript was the only one in existence, and that if it were lost, he could not supply me with another. So it was put hurriedly under lock and key, and the rest of my day was spent going up one mean street and down another, climbing small staircases, opening bedroom doors and meeting disappointment everywhere. At last, a tenor from a cathedral choir was discovered, swearing from among the bedclothes, that he could do musical copying with anyone in the world, and pledging his word of honour that he would be with me at ten o'clock next morning. 
He smelt like a corpse, but no matter, a score is a score, and Benson had to receive a copy of it within the next fortnight. The conductor at the gate, he said he would like to copy the parts. In copying them, he would learn the music, so I yielded to him Edgar's score, Elgar's score, sorry, begging of him not to lose it, at which he laughed, and some days afterwards, he asked me to the music room and called to his orchestra to follow. The parts were distributed, and the conductor took up his baton, and singing, and singing the entrance of and singing to the fiddles, the slow and melancholy march began, the conductor singing the entrance of every instrument, preserving an unruffled demeanour till the horn went quack. We will start that again. Number 17. The horn again went quack. And I shall always remember how the players shook his head and looked at the conductor as if to say that the composer should have been warned that in such long intervals there is no depending on the horn. When it was over, the conductor turned to me, saying, There's your march, what do you think of it? It will have to be played better than that before I can tell, a remark the orchestra did not like, and for which I felt sorry. But it is difficult to have the courage of one's opinions on the spot, and while walking home, I thought of the many fine things that I might have said that Alga had drawn all the wail of the Cairn into the languorous rhythm of his march, and that he had been able to do this because he had not thought for a single instant of the external forms of native music, but had allowed the sentiment of the scene to inspire him. Out of the harmony a little melody floats, pathetic as an autumn leaf. And it seemed to me that Alga must have seen the primeval forest as he wrote, and the tribe moving along, and the falling leaves, oak leaves, hazel leaves. For the world began with oak and hazel. His mourners, Diomede's mourners, were without doubt wistful folk, with eyes as sad as the waters of western lakes, very like their descendants whom I found waiting for me in the dining room, Irish speakers, I knew them to be, by their long upper lips. And it was almost unnecessary for them to tell me that they were the actors and actresses chosen for Dr. Hyde's play, The Twisting of the Rope. We've never acted before, said a fine, healthy countrywoman, speaking with a rich brogue. But we can all speak Irish. I suppose you can, as you're going to act in an Irish play. We mean that we are all native speakers except Miss O'Kennedy and Miss O'Sullivan, and they have learnt Irish as well as you've learnt French, she added somewhat tartly. I hope they've learnt it a great deal better, I answered, for I've never been able to learn that language. What we mean is, said Tade O'Donoghue, that we can speak Irish fluently. I was very anxious to know how long it would take to learn Irish perfectly, and if Miss O'Sullivan and Miss O'Kennedy knew it as well as English. We talked for about half an hour, and then they all stood up together. I suppose the best thing we can do is to go home and learn our parts. If I am to rehearse the play, I would sooner that you learned your parts with me at rehearsal. Again, we engaged in conversation, and I learned that they all made their living by teaching Irish. Pupils were waiting for them at that moment, and that was why they could not stay to tea. 
They would, however, meet me tomorrow evening in the rooms of the Keating branch of the Gaelic League. Dr Hyde was coming at the end of the week, and for three weeks I followed the Irish play in a translation made by Hyde himself, teaching everyone his or her part, throwing all my energy into the production. Giving it as much attention as the most conscientious regisseur ever gave to a play at the Francaise. And while we were rehearsing the twisting of the rope, Mr Benson was rehearsing Diamond and Grenier in Birmingham. A letter came from him one morning telling me that he did not feel altogether sure that I would be satisfied with the casting of the, la- the part of Laban, and Yeats, who sometimes attended my rehearsals, said, You had better go over to Birmingham and see if you can't get another woman to play the part. But our play doesn't matter, Yeats. What matters is the twisting of the rope. We either want to make Irish the language of Ireland, or we don't, and if we do... Nothing else matters. Hyde is excellent in his part, and if I can get the rest straightened out, and if the play be well received, the Irish language will at last have gotten its chance. Yeats did not take so exaggerated a view of the performance of Hyde's play as I did. I see that Benson says that the lady who is going to play Laban has a beautiful voice, and he suggests that you might write to Elgar, asking him if he would contribute a song to the first act. The more music we get from Elga, the better. Now, Yeats, if you'll go home and write some verses and let me go on with the rehearsal, we'll send them to Elga tonight. Yeats said he would see what he could do, and to my surprise, brought back that afternoon a very pretty, unrhymed lyric. Nothing, however, to do with the play. It was sent to Elga, who sent back a very beautiful melody by return post, and both went away to Benson and were forgotten until I went to the Gaiety Theatre with Yeats to a rehearsal of our play. The lady that played Laban sang the lyric very well, but Schubert's Ava Maria could not have been more out of place. As for the acting, Benson was right. The lady was not a tragic actress. Even if she had been, she could not have acted the part. So much was her appearance against her. She looked more like a quiet nun than a druidess. And drawing aside Yeats, who was telling her how she should hold a wine cup, I said, It's no use, Yeats. You're only wasting your time. The performance will be ridiculous. Why didn't you go to Birmingham, as I asked you? Because Hyde's play would have suffered. But one can't have one's cake and eat it. Of course, it's dreadfully disappointing. It's quite hopeless. I shall not go to see the play tonight. I meant what I said and was reading in my armchair about eight o'clock when Frank Fay called to me. He was writing about the play and would be better able to do so if I could lend him the manuscript. I'll try to find you one. And if... And after searching for some time in my secretary's room, I came back with some loose sheets. This is the best I can do for you, I said, bidding him goodbye. But aren't you coming to the theatre? No. I saw the play rehearsed this afternoon. Benson is very good, as Diamond, and I like Mr Benson. Rodney plays the part of Finn. He is one of the best actors in England, and Conan will please you. Then why won't you come? The lady that plays Laban sings a ballad very beautifully in the first act, but you will come to see your play. You won't sit here all night. No, you'll come. For nothing in the world. I couldn't bear it. All the same, he succeeded in persuading me. And that's the end of chapter 6. 
20 minutes on the treadmill, 91 calories apparently burnt. That's not very much for 20 minutes, but I guess it feels like more than that. I guess reading, speaking while you're doing it makes you more out of breath. Uh, cool. <laughs> but other than that, I'd say that's a success. Very good. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow. Oh, dismount.